Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priest and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water. And washed his hands before the crowd saying. I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. May God bless the reading of his word. Mandy. It's good to be back with you guys, uh, my wife and I and our family. Got a little bit of a break over fall break, but it's always good uh, to be with you in person. We were watching via the live stream last week, but it is nothing like uh, being here in person with you. I want you to imagine um, if you were to pick up a newspaper or to turn on the news and you saw headline news, a breaking news story which said, the guilty are set free. Now what would you presume would have happened? Likely you presume that a great uh, miscarriage of justice has occurred, right? Uh, you would presume this is bad 
news. Criminals have been set free. They are running loose, having escaped the punishment for their crimes. Really, in no circumstance would anybody in their right mind say, you know what, that's good news. That's good news. The guilty have gone unpunished. The guilty are set free. Yet this morning, everything that we have done, everything that we have sung, everything that we have read, it speaks to the great and glorious truths of the Christians who say, actually, this is the greatest news to ever be proclaimed. The guilty are set free. How can that be good news? It's rather strange news, isn't it? But yet, it's the news that gives us our greatest joy. This morning, certainly as we come to this passage, there is a great miscarriage of justice. We will see a criminal, a murderer, an insurrectionist is actually set free, and in his place, an innocent man is punished and condemned to die. And yet in the irony of all this, this story is full of irony. In the irony of it all, it is in this injustice by which wicked men have let a wicked man let go free and punished an innocent man, that their work of evil has actually resulted in the satisfaction of God's justice for all who are united to Christ by faith. See, in Christ, the guilty are set free. We're freed from the punishment due to our sins, our rebellion, our hostility to our good and loving creator. And this passage today presents to us in vivid fashion the greatest news for humanity, namely that in Christ a great exchange has taken place, that in Christ Jesus has taken upon himself our sin and our judgment so that through faith in him we can take upon ourselves his righteousness in life. He takes our place, we take his. And it is in this way that we can declare with the psalmist in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Right? And that's what I want us to do this morning as we dive into this text. I do not want us to forget his benefits. The benefits that he has offered for us having taken our place. So this morning, as we consider Jesus' trial before, before Pilate, we're reminded that through the great exchange of Christ, we have gained three things. We have gained a spokesman, we have gained a substitute, and we have gained a savior. See, it's because we're guilty of sin and rebellion that you and I need a spokesman. An advocate, if you will, an advocate with the Father who can plead our case for us. We need a spokesman who can stand up for us against the charges that lay against us for violating God's holy law. For left to ourselves, we stand condemned. Yet it is here in Jesus' inquisition before Pontius Pilate that we not only see Jesus' willingness to go to the cross for us, but his resilience to remain silent under false charges 
so that he could now speak on our behalf. It's morning time, and Jesus has now been found guilty of blasphemy. The religious leaders have tried him. They have found him to be guilty of proclaiming himself to be the Son of God, to proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. Uh, The high priest has ripped his robes in disgust, and he says, what further evidence do we need? By his own confession, he has declared himself to be the Christ. This man is worthy of death. However, all that means nothing to a Roman court. All that means nothing to the Roman Empire who had the power of the sword. And so Jesus' so-called crime of blasphemy, which they have, they have uh, brought up against him, needs to be twisted a bit. It needs to be adjusted if it's going to have some stick you know, to it, if they're going to get what they really want, which is the death penalty. And so what they do is they, they adjust it a little bit. If, if Jesus is the Christ, who is the Christ? He is to be the, the son of David. And who is the son of David? The son of David is the king. And if there's a king in Israel, that means Caesar's not king. And so that is the charge that they bring to Pilate. That Jesus is essentially an insurrectionist. He's a revolutionary who is trying to establish a kingship besides Caesar. And so this brings us to verse 11, where Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him then, are you the king of the Jews? That's why the question is posed. He's been brought, hey, we have a a rival king. He claims to be the king of the Jews. And so Pilate asks him, is that so? And we see that Jesus initially gives a brief response, and he says, you have said so. It's a similar, in fact, it's the same response that he gave to the chief priests who put him under oath and said, I adjure you by the the, the name of the living God, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And, And Jesus says, it is as you have said. Jesus's hesitant affirmations here Both communicate that technically, yes, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the king of the Jews. But but in a way of saying it, but I'm not the type of Messiah. I'm not the type of king that you suspect me to be. You suspect me to be one who is about to set my kingdom here on earth. John's gospel tells us that Jesus responds, if my kingdom was of this earth, of this world, then my servants would be fighting, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is a king that they don't understand. They don't realize that Jesus is the suffering king. He's the suffering servant who has come to bear the transgressions for his people. So he says, sure, it's as you say, I'm a king. And beyond that, he remains silent. Even as more and more accusations and false charges are brought against him by the religious leaders. And it gets to the point in verse 13 that, that Pilate says to them, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Are you just going to sit there and not respond to this? Are you just going to remain quiet? He makes no defense for himself. Now, most of us, if anybody says anything falsely about us, we're saying, that's not true. 
If we were standing in a court and false testimony was coming before us, we'd want to stand and we wanted to make a defense for ourselves. Say those, those charges don't stick and we'd, we'd want to have a lawyer making a case for us. And we want to bring in witnesses to, to, to counter these false charges. But Jesus doesn't do anything. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he speak up? Well, if he spoke up and refuted the religious leaders, which no doubt he's already shown that he can do. If you were with us when Jesus is in the temple in chapters 21 through 23, Jesus is having basically a duel with the rabbis and, 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 and what is the true wisdom of God, and he shows them to be utter and completely incompetent. Why doesn't he do that now? Because if he was to do so, Pilate would see that these charges are frivolous and they'd be dropped. And if the charges are dropped, then Jesus doesn't go to the cross. And so what I want you to see this morning, brothers and sisters, is the willingness of Jesus to suffer for you. Jesus doesn't go to the cross unwillingly, but willingly. As Jesus says uh, elsewhere, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own authority so that I can take it up again. And he will take it up again. Jesus stands silent before Pilate as a condemned man. He stands, here's the irony, he stands as one being judged, though he is the judge of all the earth. And he stands silent as Pilate sits on his judgment seat his courtroom. He's the one with the gavel. He is the one with authority, yet he's not. And yet Jesus remains silent so that he could stand forever before the throne of the Father and make intercession for you. Because he remains silent, he now remains our spokesman before God. Because he did not speak then, he can evermore speak on your behalf. And brothers and sisters, you must have a spokesman before the holy and righteous God. Because the law of God says you and I are guilty. And what does Jesus say as the charges of the law, which are not false charges, they're, they're accurate, they're true we all stand condemned, but yet Jesus says, my blood has covered your sins. My life was given for your life. I took your guilt upon my shoulder. In the law of God, I have upholded. I have fulfilled it. In me, the justice of God has been satisfied. I am your substitute. John writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, I write to you, my children, that you may not sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. This is the greatest news. You have a spokesman, but you and I would not have a spokesman if he spoke up here, if he resisted here. Perhaps you feel that no one speaks on your behalf. You ever feel like that? There's no advocate for me. No one comes to my defense. But I want you to know that if you are in Christ, you have a great advocate with the Father. One who stands evermore to make intercession for you 
He was silent then that he may be your spokesman now. And it is this reality that the text reminds us of, that not only is Jesus our spokesman, but he's able to be our spokesman because he's our substitute. He, he takes our place. And so in Christ, we gain a substitute here. And it's here in verses 15 through 23 that the reality of Christ as our substitute becomes the focal point. A substitute. What is a substitute? It's simply one who stands in the place of another, and Christ stands in our place of condemnation so that we may go free. And this beautiful truth is emphasized here as, as Pilate now seeks to, to find a way to release Jesus because he knows he's innocent. This whole, the whole passage is, is full of irony. Jesus is innocent and everyone knows it. At the end of verse 14, Matthew tells us that Pilate is greatly amazed at Jesus. He marvels at Jesus. He doesn't see Jesus' silence as some sort of expression of rebellious antagonism, as if he's not going to cooperate. There's a confidence in Jesus' silence. There's a sense in which none of these accusations stick and everybody knows it. And Pilate sees it. And he's marveling at Jesus. He's impressed with Jesus. And this, uh, this impression actually is consistent with what Pilate has already begun to realize. We see in verse uh, 18 that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He knew that this whole charade was just that. It was a charade. It's a facade. They're just jealous of this man who, who has the attention of the people but he is of no threat. He's done no wrong. He's done no evil. And it is evident even here in the courtroom as he stands silent. The attentive listener to this text would also be aware of Isaiah's prophecy, which says that the suffering servant will impress the nations as he suffers. Pilate's impressed. He's impressed by his innocence. He's impressed by his integrity. And so now he seeks a way to release him. Matthew tells us in verse 15, Now at the feast of the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now hone in there whom they wanted. They're going to see guilt come upon the people of God. They're going to get what they want. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? This passage, we are introduced to the infamous Barabbas. In fact, this text tells us he's notorious. Now, when you hear the, uh, the idea of notorious, that usually means, oh, that's negative. You're you're, you're a negative person, and, and depending on your perspective, he is a negative person. But Mark's gospel tells us that, that Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel. He was a revolutionary. He was a, a nationalist, if you will, who had taken matters in his own hands, probably led a, a group of guerrilla warfare men, and they had 
in some sense, resisted the Roman Empire. They'd taken matters in their own hands, and, and clearly he had gotten some licks in. He'd taken out some. He was guilty of murder. We don't know who he murdered, but he, as Mark tells us, was an insurrectionist. It's interesting, as this contrast between Barabbas and Jesus is built up, that that in some of our tradition, uh, early church, and even some of our earliest manuscripts give Barabbas the name Jesus as well. There seems to be evidence that his name was Jesus Barabbas, which means Jesus, son of the Father. And so we see Jesus, son of the Father, versus Jesus, the son of God. We see Jesus who is a revolutionary, and we see a Jesus who is not. We see a, a Jesus who takes action through violence and insurrection and one who lays down his life. There's lots of contrast here. And it may be that that's why we see even here, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? A, a, a defining, I'm talking about the one who claims to be the Messiah. If you've got an NIV today, the NIV actually puts it there, Jesus Barabbas. And so it might be possible that what's going on here is that Pilate thinks, okay, the crowd wants Jesus, the Christ, and he is mistaken, and they actually want Barabbas. Mark's gospel says that actually they approach Pilate, and they say, hey, we, ha we want you to release for us a prisoner. It seems that they already had somebody in mind, and... and uh, and Pilate wants to clarify, who, who is it? Do I release Barabbas or do I release the Christ? Well, apparently as this offer is on the table, as, as Pilate is trying to maneuver and, and find a way to, to kind of uh, force the, the religious leader's hand to, to release um, Jesus, his wife sends him word. It's early in the morning. She's woken up. And apparently she's had a nightmare. Now just imagine if you're in Pilate's shoes. You already have, have seen and heard that this, this whole bringing up Jesus thing is a sham. You've now seen him for yourself and you can see the innocence in the man. And then in that very night, your wife comes to you and says, I've had a dream about this man that she has no idea about. Is on trial. And she now hears, I've had a dream about this righteous man, this innocent man. And I tell you, have nothing to do with him. What does she mean by that? Have nothing to do with his murder. Have nothing to do with his condemnation. He has caused me great pain. We don't know to what extent that what she has seen, uh, but she is clearly an emotional wreck. And she is fearful that, that her husband is going to reap great judgment if she hands this man over to condemnation, an innocent man. And so Pilate now comes out for a second time as he's now being confronted and we are seeing all the more that Jesus is innocent. And this innocence is all the more now being contrasted with Barabbas' guilt. And so he comes out again. He says, who do you want me to release for you? And apparently while he's, he's in here getting information about his dream, the religious leaders have gone to work. They know the offer that is being put before them, and they have now convinced 
the people. You don't want Jesus who claims to be the Christ. You want Jesus Barabbas who gets things done. You want the insurrectionists. You want to release this nationalist hero who's fighting for us. You want Barabbas. So when Pilate comes out, he says, who do you want me to release? And the crowd says, Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Which Pilate is taken back. He says, well, what should I do with Jesus who's called the Christ? And with shocking uh, response, they said, let him be crucified. Let him die. Kill him. Which is exactly what the religious leaders had persuaded them, not only to release Barabbas, but call for the head of Jesus. Let him be destroyed. Pilate says, what evil has he done? And of course, we know he's done none. Jesus is truly the righteous sufferer. And they don't care. They cry out all the more, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. What are we witnessing here? We see that in Jesus Christ, there was no deceit found in his mouth. He's innocent. He's done no evil, yet the guilty Barabbas is set free, isn't he? There's an exchange that has taken place. Despite Jesus' innocence, he is convicted as a criminal so that Barabbas may be pardoned of all his crimes. That's what's going on here. A pardoning. Jesus is Barabbas' substitute. It's very likely that the two robbers that are on Either side of Jesus were compatriots with Barabbas. Barabbas is also called a robber. And it's not in the sense that they're just running around trying to steal people's stuff. They're, 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 they're violent men. And Jesus is literally in the center. He's being condemned as a criminal. He's taking Barabbas' spot. That's why the crosses are ready to go. Probably there was already plans for there to be a crucifixion that day for Barabbas and his men. But today, Jesus takes his place. Through faith, brothers and sisters, guess what? He takes your place. He takes your place, though you and I, our mouths are full of deceit. We're not innocent. We are guilty of breaking God's law. We have done what is evil. Yet on the cross, Jesus takes the place of sinners. Perhaps you're here today and you're greatly aware of your sin. Maybe the Spirit is convicting you right now and there are things you have thought, things you have said, things that you've done that you'd be ashamed if anybody knows, but you know the Heavenly Father knows. You know your Creator knows. And you see yourself right here in this text. You see yourself in Barabbas, and you know that if tried, you'd be found guilty. If you stood before a holy and righteous God, and he, he brought his law to bring uh, before you, that you would not stand a chance to stand on your own merits. There'd be no shot. 
But I want you to know that if you come to Christ, you will gain a substitute, one who stands condemned in your place, one who has indeed taken your place. See, where the fire is already burned, it does not burn again. And Christ stood in the midst of the fire of God's furious judgment for you, that if you stand with him by faith, the fire no longer burns. And so in this way, you gain not only a spokesman, a substitute, but a savior. It's not merely a passive sense in which uh, Christ takes your place, but there's in, in built in a, a positive sense. You, you gain something. You, you gain redemption. You gain liberty. And that's exactly what we gain in Christ. It's not just that merely we escape the punishment, but we gain a Savior. We gain his life. We gain his righteousness. Well, here, Pilate's plans have backfired on him. He's trying every which way he can to maneuver this politically very sensitive situation. But though his plans have backfired, they have actually accomplished the will of God. Pilate is on political thin ice. He is actually a rather ruthless uh, ruler, one who can fly off the handle. In fact, he's already had several riots under his watch, and he has um, had some issues where he has literally sent out soldiers to, 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 to mow down anyone who opposes him. And that has caused great unrest in Israel. And some of the history records that we have let us know that he knows that he's on the last thread with Caesar. He can't have another riot on his hands. And so this is the political tension and the sense in which the religious leaders know they can leverage this against him. So Pilate is, is trying to thin or thread a needle to save his own political career here. He sees this man as innocent. He, he surely has some sense of guilt and remorse, which we will see that he's trying to assuage, he's trying to get rid of. He doesn't want to, this man's blood to be on his head, yet he doesn't have the courage or the backbone to make the decision that may cost him his career. And so with this riot ensuing, he must bow to the people's wishes. And so cowardly, he denies any guilt in the matter. He, see, he washes his hands. He says, I'm, I'm free of the blood of this man. See to it yourself. He says the same thing the religious leader said to Judas. This is on you. And it is here that we see one of the most disturbing responses in all of Scripture. The crowns reply, no problem. Let his blood be upon our heads, and not only ours, but our children. What? They literally pronounce a curse on themselves. You're worried about the blood being on your head? Don't worry about it. We're gladly to take this man's blood and be guilty of it. And so they reject Jesus as their Messiah and choose Barabbas. And I can't help but think that in this passage and in this confession, we, we see the wickedness of our own hearts, don't we? When we reject Jesus, what, 
Sometimes in the throes of our sin, when we are, are filled with the passions and led by the passions of our flesh, there's a sense in which, give me what I want, I don't care the consequences. I don't care the consequences upon me, and I don't care the consequences upon my family or previous or generations to come. Give me what I want. We see ourselves here. And yet the people for whom Christ came have delivered him over to crucifixion. And they don't care what happens to them or the next generation. And just as Israel, here in this text, will reap the consequences of their sin, Jesus has already talked about the destruction of Jerusalem. Rome will come in in just another 40 years and ransack Jerusalem. It's judgment that has come upon them. And just as Israel will reap the consequences of her sin of rejecting Christ, so everyone who rejects Christ remains under the curse of their sin. That's what has happened here, right? If you reject Christ, if you reject this spokesman, you reject this substitute, you reject this Savior, then you reject his benefits. You remain under a curse. The blood is on your head. And upon everyone who walks in your footsteps. However, everyone who receives Christ, guess what? You're released. Verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas. You're released from your sins like Barabbas is released from his. See, it is by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus is then scourged, and you're, you're well familiar with the scourging process. Scourging would be a whipping that where, where, where uh, leather would be sewn in with, with uh, bone and pieces of, of rock and metal, and it was intended to, to, to rip the flesh. Oftentimes, these scourgings, they were intended, in some sense, to speed up the crucifixion process to weaken the, the individual. Matthew doesn't give this detail, but this scourging was part of, uh, of an attempt of Pilate to, to sway the, the hand and the emotions of the people. He, he, he scourges him, gives him a, a purple robe, and puts a crown of thorns upon him, says, and, and, and behold, your king, as he's covered in blood. And he's hoping that they'd say, that's enough punishment, but they say, no, crucify him. Again, we see Isaiah's prophecy, by his wounds we are healed. It's not just that Jesus takes your sin, he heals you. He gives you his righteousness. The exchange is complete. He takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness. He takes your punishment, he gives you his glory. by his wounds that he was healed, that we are healed. He was scourged that we would be released from the curse of our sins. Jesus was delivered up to be crucified and suffer the punishment of death so that we would escape death's sting. So do you see your Savior here today? Do you see in the text your Savior? Your Savior who was silent like a lamb led to the slaughter so that he can now speak on your behalf? Do you see your Savior who took your place as your substitute so that you may be declared innocent? 
Do you see your Savior who suffered the judgment of death so that you may be released to have eternal life? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? If you see the Savior today, come to him. Come to him now to escape the curse and your hands will be truly washed of the guilt of his blood. And his blood will cover you and he will wash all your sins away. For in Christ there is now no condemnation. The guilty are set free. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, may we see you. Lord, may you show mercy upon any hardened heart this morning. The grace of God was offered today. A spokesman, a substitute, a savior. And I pray no one would leave here without benefiting from him. Oh, that we would turn from our sins, that we would see ourselves as guilty, worthy of death, worthy of punishment, worthy of judgment, and yet find ourselves recipients of grace, a grace that is found in Jesus Christ, and that, that if we come to him by faith, you will knit our lives to him, and the judgment will pass over us. What a sweet exchange you have offered. Lord, may we be reminded of these truths so that we forget not his benefits. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Amen. Man, let's stand this morning as we respond together in song. Jesus ready stands to say
it has been a good morning. Real quick, by way of reminder, right out the back door here is an information table, and we have information on DOP, which will meet next week. That's going to be next week. If you haven't registered, you can do that at the table or at oakparkbaptist.com forward slash join, so we encourage you to do that. And also, fall festivals coming up. We have more information at the table back there. We continue to need volunteers. We want to announce that we are having the chili cook-off this year, so if you make some mean chili, you want to cook that up, and we'll be competing and eating all that good stuff. And then also, there's a uh, bucket out there that we need candy so that we can give all the kiddos. I think they'll be excited about that. A couple of whoos. Anyway, so more information at the table. We encourage you to go out and check those things out and get more information on that. As we go today, here is our benediction that we will leave with from Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21. says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing, or every good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in God's peace. <laughs>